So last week, as we looked at uh, Ruth and Boaz, you noticed that there was a slight turn in the heart of Naomi. She was seeing something happen before her very eyes. God was providing a man, and God was also providing provisions. Her heart and her eyes were opening up to see what God was doing all behind the scenes. It wasn't this great big, the skies were opening up, and it's like, oh, and God came down, and there was this miraculous movement, but God was moving behind the scenes in his providence to care for Naomi, to care for Ruth. Today, what we see here is, I believe in chapter 3, the turning point for the whole book of Ruth. Naomi has now kind of come out of her depression and is now thinking of how she can ensure that Ruth has a good husband. For Naomi, hope is kicking in high gear. Last year, or last week, we saw that hope was gently rising and something was going on. But this week, we are seeing that hope is kicking in high gear. And Naomi is responding in ways that are just amazing. So we saw last week in chapter 2 just this this, uh, budding relationship between Ruth and Boaz. And we saw in this man, he was like a warrior kind of hero, a man who was following after God, a man full of integrity. And he was a generous provider for all people, but especially for Ruth. He commanded his young workers to leave behind bundles. He commanded his young workers to make sure that they lay hands off of this woman. And she always came back with more than she ever needed. There's something about this man, Boaz, a man who loves God and is deeply generous. We're captivated at how Boaz notices Ruth and blesses her with this incredible kind of Hessedness that we talked last week about the hessedness of God, this compassionate, generous, ever never ending kind of love and care and protection that He has that went beyond the law and can only be defined by grace. The writer of Ruth, however, does not give us much detail of what happened between chapter, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. There's kind of a, a time gap of go, that's going on in there. And it's been probably about two months going on, and there's no indication that Boaz or Ruth had done much or said much or had much interaction going on since their first meeting. So we don't know what's really going on. So what really has happened? What has happened? I believe it's safe for us to say that during this time, God continued to work in both of their hearts, bringing them together in in a divine, special kind of way that only he could understand at this point in time. But now we see something in Naomi, right? Naomi is the one who is actively doing this kind of hessedness, this compassionate care, active, searching out, protecting. Naomi will continue now to refer to Ruth as my daughter. No longer my, this Moabite girl. She is now my daughter. And this is the only word, there's only one word in, in the Hebrew 
It's not my daughter. It's just one word, and it signifies a very strong bond and relationship that these two women have for each other. And especially there's a family bond that Naomi now feels for Ruth, even though they are in no way blood relatives. So Naomi poses a a rhetorical kind of question for Ruth, asking her if she should not seek rest for her. Should I not seek rest for you? And what does that mean? You know, is, is, is Naomi kind of looking at herself as an employer and saying, man, I need to send you on off to Jerusalem. You need to take a, a weekend and enjoy yourself in the hotel in, in Jerusalem. And just shouldn't you, shouldn't you not find rest? You've been working your tail off, woman. And you've been caring for me. Is, is that what she's talking about? The answer is no. In the NIV, it translates this as, should I find a home for you? And in the New American Standard Version, it translates this question as seeking security for her. So clearly, Naomi has in mind for Ruth that she is looking for marriage for her daughter-in-law. Naomi's desire for Ruth that it may be totally well with her soul. And this is a common expression that's associated with attractive benefits, such as bridal happiness, security, long life, material prosperity, and many children. Should I not find some kind of rest for you in this kind of way? So Naomi has finally come to the conclusion that she must now do something to bring Ruth and Boaz together in a very decisive manner. We saw this in Ruth before though, right? where Ruth stepped out in faith, coming to a strange land, strange people. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. But she took the gutsy move of saying, I, I am going to the field. I am going to, I'm going to work these fields, and I'm going to care for my mother-in-law. Now the mother-in-law, hope is rising. Hope, hope is now kicking in high gear. The mother-in-law is now saying, I am now going to act for you. Remember back in chapter 1, that Naomi actually prayed these very things for both of her daughter-in-laws. You can see that in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. So now, through the providence of God and His hand working behind the scenes, this situation, this very situation has emerged in such a way that Naomi can put together a plan that will will, in effect, answer her own prayer. God moves through human history, and he moves this human history along according to his sovereign plan and according to his desires. But hear this. It is sometimes ourselves who actually execute God's plan in our lives. All too often, we as Christians just say, all right, I'm just waiting for God to move, right? I'm just waiting for God, and I'm going to just sit here passively and hope it just kind of hits me like a train and kind of moves me into action. And now all the skies open up, and I know what to do. But it's often we see how God works is actually it is through our action that God executes his plan in our lives. And as we stressed earlier, faith has an action. There's an activity component to faith. So theologically speaking, 
Ruth, or Naomi, is God's instrument. Naomi is God's instrument to act out his sovereign will. God acts in Naomi's acts. Kind of changes the way that we look at our day-to-day life, right? God acts in your action. So let's, let's look at what's going on in this text more so than just kind of a brief overview. We, we've come to the season, kind of the end of the, the season, and many of you are not farmers, and you have no clue really what's going on here. So this is the winnowing. This is a time of celebration and festivities. All the grain has been brought into the storehouse. They take these sheaves, they knock off the grain, they thresh it out, and it's all kind of sitting out there, but it still has a a covering over the grain itself, and so that needs to come off. And So this is a time of, wow, we have seen God's provision coming in, and you got to remember how judges ended. It was a time of judgment, and... Elimelech and his whole family left Bethlehem because there was no harvest, there was no food, there was no bread in Bethlehem. But now they came back because God was blessing them again, probably because of their faithfulness. And so now we've got Boaz enjoying the bounty, the bounty of all this grain. And often in this time, it is celebration, it is festivity, it is marking the end of the harvest season so there was a joy, it was a joyous occasion, especially this time as God blessed his people with an abundant harvest. It was a time, a meal to be celebrated. So there would have been, during this time of winnowing, a cel- there would have been celebration feasts. There would have been partying, and Boaz would have probably had to need to stay after the party and and the feast and guard his grain from robbers. So that's why he's going back into this, this, this building and lying on the grain. So the time would have been right for Ruth to move the process along. She would have known where this man of God was. So Naomi formulates a plan. And this, I'll be honest, this section of Ruth is complex because it seems that Naomi is kind of giving some shady advice to Ruth. It's shady advice that might not be very appropriate. In fact, if I was in this place right there, I would not advise my daughter to do these very things. She tells Ruth, go and wash yourself. Put on some perfume. Get dressed. And go see Boaz. It seems a little shady, a little scary. It's a risk. In other words, she wants to make herself attractive for Boaz and even alluring. If I send my daughter out on a date, you wear a a piece of sackcloth and you look pitiful because I don't want any boy to love you. But, But we have Naomi saying, you look good, girl. You smell nice. You clean up. You put the finest dress on. I want you to be enticing. But it feels like there's a recommendation to go and seduce, right? She even gives the recommendation to go in, uncover his feet, and lay at his feet. 
So what is, what is really kind of going on here? It's, it seems out of character for all the, the players in this story, but this is exactly what instructions are going on. So what's going on? Basically, what Naomi is doing is telling Ruth to end her period of mourning. If you remember, not long ago, what happened to Ruth? She lost her husband. They all lost. All, all, all the women in this story lost their husband. And so there was a period of mourning and grieving. And often during that time, they would put on sackcloth and they, they would just be set apart because of the sorrow in their heart. And there's a parallel that we can see in, in the man, the King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David mourns the loss of his son. And when he is done mourning, what does he do? He washes himself. He applies some, some man perfume. He puts on his clothes. And then what does he do? He goes to the temple and worships. He cleans himself up. This signifies the end of David's mourning period for the death of his son. And it appears that Naomi is encouraging Ruth to do the same. Listen, your time is done. You have mourned long enough. This would explain even why Boaz kind of kept his, his distance from her, respecting her, less outgoing from her working in his fields. She was probably still wearing her mourning clothes, and Boaz, being a man of honor and integrity, did not want to impose himself upon her during this time period. He respected her in her time of mourning. So Naomi instructs Ruth to go to the, the threshing floor but don't make yourself known <clears throat> until he has finished eating, until he's finished drinking. In other words, wait till this man's belly is full and his heart is glad. Women, you know, the best time to talk to your husband, the best way to get to a man's heart is how? Through his stomach, Through his stomach right? He has eaten well. He has drunk at the party. It doesn't say anything about he's totally inebriated, but his heart is glad. So this man is now, he's eaten. He has, he has drunk some food, some wine or whatever he's drunk. And, but he's, they, there were instructions. Wait, wait until he's after done all these things and it will be the right time to approach him. Naomi understood timing. She also understood men. Ruth was not to interrupt his meal, nor was she to embarrass him and make a scene in front of his guests. Naomi wanted to make sure that nothing, nothing was left to chance and made detailed plans and instruct Ruth to do exactly as he has said. Ruth was to take notice of the place where he lies down. And then she was to go where he was lying and she was to un uncover his feet and lay at his feet and then wait for his instructions. That's where it gets really dicey for me. The wording of these verses are just replete with sexual innuendos. Wait until he's alone and go when it's dark. <laughs> go to him uncover his blanket and lie down with him tell him that you will do whatever he asks if she ever does that so help me God 
that young man may not live, and nor may she ever see the light of day. The verb here to uncover or to make, make visible that something is hidden occurs primarily in phrases describing illicit sexual relations. The writer is probably using these words to add a tinge of, of uncertainty and per, possibly tenseness to this occasion, this situation. The, the readers don't, like us, know the end of the story. And so everybody's going, you've got to be kidding. What's going to be happening now? <laughs> Things could get dicey if Naomi misjudged Ruth's character or Boaz's character or both of their characters. Would they succumb to the, the, the temptation in that moment? Ruth looked good, smelled very attractive. Boaz had a full stomach. Was Naomi risking disaster or provoking one? The author wants us to wait and see of what we know about God's character, his hand, his work, his love for his people. The author has given us this as a background, added tension for us to ask, what is going to happen next? So Ruth uncovered his feet. She laid at his feet. And in the night air, something happened. A spider crawled across his face. The cool of the night, all, maybe his, his back was a little rough laying on this grain, grain, whatever. All of a sudden, he was startled awake. And what did he find at his feet? He found Ruth. He found Ruth. She was laying there. And lying at his feet, she was demonstrating her humility towards him as a servant. It's a picture of even how we are to present ourselves to Christ as servants. What do we do? We, lay, we sing songs about this all the time, right? I lay myself at your feet, at the feet of the foot of the cross. There I am. I am I'm here, Lord. I am at your service. Tell me what to do. And this is what Naomi is doing. She is giving us a gospel kind of picture. So we see here, she is being a, a servant at his feet. She's not being a loose woman looking to ensnare Boaz with any kind of illicit sexual relations. Ruth did as her mother-in-law asked her. Naomi's scheme is obviously a gamble. She says, he says, who are you? It's dark, old man. And he was looking for his glasses, wondering what is going on. And her response is, I am Ruth, your servant. I'm no longer Ruth the Moabite. I am Ruth, your servant. She has become a woman in her own right, and her status as Boaz's servant has now superseded her status as a foreigner, as an outsider, as someone who didn't matter, she is now part of the inner circle. And this indicated that she is now eligible for marriage. Giving her name meant that she trusted Boaz with her very life. And it's here where she departs from Naomi's script. Naomi just said, do whatever he says. And she asked Boaz to spread his wings over her, this servant, because you are my redeemer. 
You are my redeemer. Naomi ended her instructions for her daughter-in-law in verses 2 and 4 by just saying, do whatever he says to do. Don't say anything more. Keep your mouth shut. Shh. But what does she do? She turns around and she lectures Boaz on the, his obligations to her. These are your obligations to me. And clearly, this was a marriage proposal. And it was a gutsy move. Just as Naomi begins, begins to answer her own prayer through the providence of God by making plans for Ruth, Ruth is asking Boaz to answer his own prayers by taking her under his wings. The wings of protection of marriage. Their marriage was the means by which God protected Ruth and paid for her in full for her hessedness, her compassion, her love to Naomi. God worked his sovereign plan by, not by direct intervention, but through human actions of, of righteous, who are righteous followers of, of God himself. And Boaz's response indicated that he understood her, her proposal. I get it. I get what you're saying. I, I, I get that you're not coming on to me strong. And Boaz immediately blesses her. Again, if we would be these kind of people like Boaz, who immediately blesses people, not just like, hey, have a good day. I hope everything goes well. I'll be thinking about you, praying for you. But the, I'm going to bless you with these very words. He blesses Ruth. And that isn't something that one does when looking for illicit sex. Let me pray for you and bless you. So Boaz tells Ruth that he will do all that she asks. He even shares that everyone in the town knows about your great character. You are a woman who is a worthy woman, outstanding. Everybody in town is talking about you. This word of being a worthy woman is literally a woman of strength and used only in Proverbs to describe an ideal wife. An ideal wife. So Boaz was telling Ruth that she is no longer considered a foreigner. She's no longer a woman of ill repute. She's no longer this woman who is outside of a covenant, but she was a woman who was strong, who was trustworthy, who was admirable and generous, generous towards her mother-in-law, right? And in effect, her character was equal to that of Boaz, who was considered earlier in chapter 2 to be a worthy man. Her character became known to everyone, and she was considered fully qualified to marry him. What a change of events, right? We saw that at the beginning of chapter 2. There was just this, a change of events that took place. Ruth comes to, to, to Bethlehem, a, a poor, destitute stranger at the mercy of foreigners who probably did not like her even in their town. She was willing, willingly and lovingly submits to her, herself to her bitter mother-in-law. And she performs hesedness, love, care, compassion as a true Israelite and a follower of God. This exemplifies the character of Ruth and the character of God. But then, you got Boaz dropping a bomb on her. He is a redeemer. I am. You're, you're right. But there is another redeemer 
who is closer in line than I am. I know your heart, Ruth, but let me tell you, there's a bump in this road, and for you it may look like a wall. There's another man who is more closely related to you who has this obligation and an opportunity to be your redeemer. Could you imagine what was going through her mind? She'd be going, wait a minute, but what about us? You, you cared for me. You loved me. You provided for me. You cared for me. And you said, you are my redeemer. What about us? Perhaps she was so selfless. And she wasn't even thinking about Boaz, but more concerned with providing for Naomi. Who knows? Maybe she was thinking, but who is this guy? Who is this guy? Is he like Boaz, a man of integrity? Or is this some toothless Joe? who is kind of scary and he, he would abuse me and use me as a possession and not love and care for me. We now have another roadblock and it just underscores the work of God in this whole situation. If indeed Boaz and Ruth are to be married, then it must be God that brings it all about. So in the morning, Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and told her everything that happened. I'm sure this post-date review, there's part of Naomi that goes, girl, I told you to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Seriously? But Ruth showed her the barley. And, and Naomi, and told Naomi that it was from Boaz. Look, look at what I've got. And if we read this too quickly, you're going to miss it. Boaz gave this to me so that I don't come back empty-handed. Do you remember who talked about coming back empty-handed? It was Naomi herself who said, I'm going back to, to Bethlehem empty-handed. I don't have any sons. I don't have a husband. There's nobody to care for me. I am going back empty-handed. And now Ruth is coming it back after meeting with Boaz. Not so empty-handed. And can you imagine the smile as the, all the dots are being connected? You've got to be kidding me. God is working in such a way. Yeah, okay, I, I hear you, Ruth. He said, he, God, th that there is another Redeemer who is, as a relative, closer. But you are coming back full. And this is my very prayer. I know the character of God. He cares for us. And Ruth is saying, I give you everything. And now you are no longer empty-handed. Seems like Ruth and Naomi, everything has changed. Hope is kicking in high gear. So there's a number of kind of key themes and, and lessons that we can learn through this whole thing. But I would say that the main thing that I see here is a lesson that we can learn about Christian hope. Christian hope. Christian hope is not just wishful thinking. Christian hope is not just sending positive thoughts your way. If I ever hear you say, I'm just sending you positive thoughts, I'm going to kick you in the butt. Okay? 
That's not what Christian hope is. It's not sending positive thoughts. Christian hope is rooted in the gospel. It is the confident expectation of a favorable future under God's direction. There There are four characteristics that I just want you to see about Christian hope from this passage that we need to understand. Here's the first one. Throw it up for me. Christian hope is based upon the character of God himself. That's what Christian hope is. Our hope is not based on people because people are too frail and will always fail us. And if you don't believe that, you're blind, okay? Our our hope is not based upon material things. It's not based on bank accounts, jobs, cars, because those things too are fleeting. Our hope is not based upon the American dream, but it is based upon the character of God under whose wings we have come to take refuge through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those wings is where we find our hope. So Naomi's hope is in this passage of Scripture is based upon seeing the hand of God in her life. She is full of hope. So we are to be hopeful too because we have, not because we have the American dream or because we believe that God will give us all of our desires, all of our dreams, that God is going to fulfill all of our plans because suddenly that becomes all about me, right? That's the problem. But we are hopeful because we have a good God. We are hopeful because he is sovereign. He is providential. He is gracious. He is loving. He is merciful. That he is watching out for our lives and our futures and will give us the very, very best thing for us. Not my will, but your will be done. That's why we're hopeful. Here's the second reason. Second thing about Christian hope. Christian hope manifests itself in strategic action. So hope is active. Hope moves. Hope doesn't just stand stand still and hope that things happen to me passively. Hope does something. In our first four verses of this passage, Naomi is full of hope. So what does she do? She comes up with a plan. A plan. And she implements it. She doesn't just sit there. She doesn't sit there like a bump on the log and and just hope that something happens like she did in the beginning of chapter 2. No, she has hope and she now moves out. Christians with little or no hope or no confidence in the Lord do not engage in strategic planning or action. They keep the status quo because they're afraid to, to ruffle feathers that then they are to actually dangerously and radically pursue the Great Commission. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to change anything. So what does that say? That you don't really have great hope in God. Leaders in unhopeful churches wring their hands in the fear of, in fear of loud and angry people are going to make their lives miserable. Or that givers, this is a big thing, to be honest, as a pastor, Leaders in unhopeful churches are, are, are fearful of that givers in the church are going to leave if they radically change anything, if they radically go after the Great Commission. <laughs> there goes all my givers. So I'm not going to change anything. So they do nothing. And what do they do? They die a death of despair. 
we can take, hear this, even as we are talking about potentially, potentially purchasing land here, buying this property and expanding, we can take calculated risks because we trust in the character of God and the goodness of God. We trust in him. And we can trust that God will honor our hope. And we can push forward and we can pursue the Great Commission. We can make changes and we can do things we feel like we have to do to go after uh, making people fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So we make plans and we're strategic about it. And that does not make us king or God. But we're trusting in God. His care and his character. And so we move. Christian hope, number three, also manifests itself in integrity. Hopeful people meet the challenges of life head on with integrity. It, it, it is hopelessness that causes people to, to feel like they have to steal, that they have to lie, that they have to seize illicit pleasures. It's because of hopelessness that people do these things. But it is hope that causes people to meet the challenges and temptations of life with integrity. This is why Boaz, what Boaz and Ruth do in this passage here. They meet temptations with integrity. And if we want to see a real man, let's look at Boaz. Boaz cares for Ruth's reputation, her safety, her provision, and it is sensitive to her situation. Instead of giving into temptation, he honors Ruth with his goodness and kindness and shows integrity despite his desires. This is a real man. Boaz really cares for Ruth, but he chooses to subordinate his desires and wants to do God's word. He refuses to go outside the boundaries of God's word in order to get what he wants he will wait in God's goodness. And they both hope in the character and the goodness of God. Here's the last thing. Christian hope manifests itself in gracious, say that last word. No, I'll say it again. You hate saying it, don't you? But it's true. Christian hope manifests itself in generous, gracious, overflowing, abounding kind of generosity. Ruth takes place in the, the time of the judges, right? And where everyone did what was right in his or her, or her own eyes. Uh, this is what I'm going to do, and this feels good. Except for Boaz. Boaz makes provisions in his field for the poor, the destitute, for them to come and to glean. But then what does he do? He goes beyond that and he demonstrates abundant and gracious generosity. And he does it to Ruth by giving her about a month's worth of food in one day. And he gives her even more in chapter 3 by filling her shawl full of barley to take home. Christian hope manifests itself in, in gracious generosity. 
And in the end, God honors Boaz's generosity by making him an ancestor to King David and to the king of the world, Jesus Christ. Hopeful people are generous people because hopeful people believe that God will honor their generosity in this life and the next, just as he did with Boaz. But we don't give to get, right? And if I just sow this seed, if I just give this to this, God's going to bless me back. That's the wrong motive for doing anything. We do it because he has done it first. He has been generous to us. So we, we are overflowing with generosity because what God has done to us, not so that we get more, but God will reward us. He will bless us. Maybe not financially, but with peace or seeing the peace in others. I want you to imagine if we were a people of hope, what a difference that would make in your life if you were a person of hope. If the stock market falls again like it did, and you, you would find yourself having to talk with all, talk your friends off the ledge, right? But you move forward in hope because you have confidence in a future that is guided by God. If we're a people of hope, Pain often leaves, we see it, it leaves people in despair. But we grieve, right? But we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope because your hope is based on the character of God. Not our, our circumstances of the day. Other people are just absolutely hamstrung in fear over a decision that they have to make. But you... You, as a person of hope, you move forward because you hope in the goodness of God. Just so you know, I'm preaching this to myself right now, too. And it, as I'm, it's coming out of my mouth, I'm going, oh, gracious, I'm going to have to go home and have a conversation with my wife because we've been having this a conversation around this whole thing about, okay, if we really believe and we hope in God, his good character and his providence and all these things working, we need to move forward in Hope strategically. We need to believe in a God that is sovereign, and we need to believe that whatever happens is good according to God. What a difference it would make in your life if you were a person of hope. So here's a few questions based off of what the previous three points. And I want you to really think about it. If you're leading a missional community, these are some really good questions. Do people... The people around you see you as a person of hope. Really, do they? Do they come to you and just go, man, I love hanging around this. He is full of hope. There, he's a, there's something different about him. I'm not talking about a guy or a woman who is, who is full of optimism or just wishful thinking, but a Christian, a Christian hope that is born of the Spirit of God that is in you. It is based upon God. And our hope is based upon God, not upon what I desire. Wealth and possessions can be here today, and it can be gone tomorrow. Ask millions of people, right? Do people see you as a person that makes plans and takes action and is willing to move out in order to ultimately glorify God? Or do they see you as a person 
that is constantly, constantly indecisive because of fear. Do they see you as a person of hope? Second question, do they see you as a a person of integrity? Do people around you see as a person of integrity as it relates to sexual temptation? Or do they see you as a person who is in as much despair as the rest of the world around them? We live in a world that has given up and has no hope when it comes to integrity. The thought of the day is that young people, single people, anybody can be expected to... uh, no. Nobody can be expected to refrain from any kind of sexual temptation because they are basically animals, right? So what do we do? We give up, we condone it, and we even bless them with the handing out of condoms. God bless you. Go and do it. You're, you're just a bunch of animals. You can't, you can't control yourself anyway. People who struggle even with same-sex attractions could never, never hope that they would... Their life could be filled with anything else other than that lifestyle. So we give up and we even ordain them in churches. But hopeful people, hopeful people believe that there is something better. Something better. Of course, we don't, we don't hate people who, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And if you ever believe that's true in this church, you're, you're, you're off base by a million miles, we love them. We love them enough to clearly and yet lovingly call them to repentance and tell them that God has something better for you as God has something better for me. So finally, here's the final question. Do people see you as a person of gracious generosity? Or do they see you as a miser, a tightwad, somebody who always wants to, in my world, we're going to go Dutch on this, right? And those of you who don't know what that means, it means we're going to go 50-50 because I really don't want to splurge on you. Do, you. do you give just because it's a little, just because it's yours and you're scared of what the future holds? Do you go to a restaurant and not tip generously because you're afraid? Do you not go to a church and really give generously because you're afraid of what tomorrow may give? Or do people see you as a person of gracious, crazy, generous, compassionate generosity that hopes and believes that God honors gracious generosity in this life and the life to come. Who do people see you as? A miser who holds tight? Or a gracious giver who says, it's not mine in the first place. We see Ruth and Naomi and Boaz all model a hope that is rooted and grounded in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. They serve as our examples today of lives that have been transformed due to our submission to Jesus Christ.
I pray that we will be people living into this story of blessing and expectation. <coughs> people of hope. Crazy, radical, Christian hope. And I pray that it will be such an ordinary, normal part of your everyday life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning for Ruth chapter 3 and how we can see uh, how hope takes in high gear as uh, Naomi sees your hand at work. And she trusts even in your uh, providential care that works behind the scenes for her good. And Lord, I pray that we too will be those kind of people, that we will trust in your good and gracious care in our lives. Lord, even when we don't really see you at work, Lord, may our faith just increase all the more. May our hope increase all the more. Because we know that ultimately you are good. Help us to trust you. And if, if any of us, Lord, this morning are lacking, would you help us? Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe. Pray this in Jesus' name.